You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. What is going on? It is your host, Matt Labrie, and you are rocking with us here on an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you are new to the show, welcome. You chose a great episode to tune into. If you're a returning member of our faithful community, really excited to have you back yet again. Today, we are joined by an individual that not only served our country, but revolutionized the way he did it. And the way he did it was through effective leadership. Now, I'm sure a lot of us have had maybe a boss or maybe a friend, maybe a family member who led us in ways that we weren't necessarily fond of. We thought, hey, we could do better or, hey, this person should be doing this to be able to get me to do this, right? Listen, the list goes on, but I want to give you a quote from today's guest. In fact, it goes something like this. Leadership is communicating to people their worth and potential so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. Now, today we are joined by Captain David Marquet, commander of the nuclear power submarine, the USS Santa Fe. Captain Marquet turned the ship around literally as it was ranked last in retention and operational standing by treating the crew as leaders and not followers. With his newly instilled methods of leadership, Captain Marquet took the USS Santa Fe from worst to first by achieving the highest retention and operational standings in the Navy. As I said, he literally turned the ship around. The practices Captain Marquet instilled within the vessel were written about by prized author Stephen Covey, I'm sure you've heard the name before, as he said it was the most empowering organization he'd ever seen leading him to write about Captain Marquet's leadership practices in his book, The Eighth Habit. Captain Marquet is the author of Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders. Now, when the book came out, Fortune Magazine named it the number one must-read business book of the year, and USA Today listed it as one of the top 12 business books of all time. Also, David has another project coming about, which we're going to unveil to you today in this episode right here, and I'm really excited to be able to deliver the good word to you today. With that said, I do want to make sure you are sharing this good word with people in your circle as I'm doing this with you, I want to make sure you're sharing it with your mastermind, your friends, your family, your co-workers, your bosses, whomever. I want to make sure that this word is getting out there because it could revolutionize the way things get done in your space, in your life. On top of that, today's episode is brought to you by Acadium. If you are an entrepreneur, if you are a C-suite executive, if you're looking to scale your marketing efforts effectively and affordably, Acadium is the way to go. We have been using it here at my branding agency, 1B Branding in New York City, for over a year now. Acadium has changed the game for us by providing us remote marketing interns that work 10 plus hours a week for 90 days at an effective and affordable rate. I promise you that. I'm not going to talk too much more about it. I want you to check it out. You could do so by the show notes of this episode. You could find the link within the show notes of this episode. Grab it. Check it out. Ask me any questions you have. Hit me up on social. Whatever the case is, I'll tell you my experience and I promise you'll absolutely love it yourself. Now, without further ado, we bring to you Captain Dave. David Marquet. David, first and foremost, I want to say thank you, but not only for hopping on the show, but thank you for your service for our amazing country. Super excited to dive in to a whole bunch of different topics here. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on your show, Matt. A hundred percent. So David, we always kick this show off with the same question. Nothing's changing here. That question to you today is how do you personally define success? Success for me is building, helping leaders build environments where their people can be at their best just the way they are. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. Now, listen, I guess that was a bit of a loaded question because I'm going to have a whole bunch of other questions around that one. But before we nah. get into that, before, <laughs> before yeah. we get into leadership, I, I need to ask you, and uh, obviously we, we know you're the leadership guy. You know, you've had Stephen Covey behind you. It, it's amazing what you've been able to create and uh, it's truly inspiring. But before we get into that, I kind of want to go through your journey, right? How did you get to this point where you're mm-hmm. at right now? So to that point, you know, I, I want to know who was David in high school? You know, was the dream always to serve our country yeah so I I was a I was a little geeky snot nose know-it-all in high school I was on the math team in the chess club but when I was going to high school that was back in the 1970s folks we were in the thing called the Cold War which you might have read about in your history books here's the deal I was deeply and passionately I deeply and passionately believed that what our country stood for as embodied by the Constitution, the ability to choose your religion, have the same opportunity, have opportunities based on merit, not family name or skin color, that this was a better way and I wanted to do my part, which meant going, for me, going into the armed forces. Now, if you're an introvert and you're a geek, there's only one place to go submarine force because the job of submarines to hide from people and you feel very comfortable hiding (laughs) (laughs) so i i kind of got out of my head to be a submarine commander and i and i went to the naval academy and lo and behold that all came true but it, it stemmed from it stemmed from this desire to to support and defend the constitution which were words that were not front of mind for a lot of people. They were just either platitudes that we said or we just sort of were embarrassed and we really didn't actually say them. Very interesting. So to that point, you know, you mentioned your desire um, in regards to the Constitution. What caused that desire? And, you know, I'm trying to get a little bit deeper there. Was there something that you maybe watched on TV? Maybe it was a war movie or, or, or something along the lines of our country. Maybe it was something you read. I'm curious, was there anything that actually piqued the interest there? Well, I think part of it was I was just growing up in the, in the United States. So part of it was easy. I was just cho- choosing my team. But there was a deeper part. Like I said, I was a, a geek and an introvert. And I read, 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 read voraciously. And I developed this pretty strong sense of what I thought were historical forces and and the conditions under which humanity did well and the conditions under which humanity did not do well. And I, I don't know why I just felt like I wanted to be on the side of doing well. You know, you you kind of made your decision there. I have to ask, was your family, were your friends in full support of this newfound dream after doing all your readings and things of that nature? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. I mean, my parents were enthusiastic. My dad was a scientist. And I wasn't following in the scientific footsteps, and yeah, I, you know, maybe that you know, there was a little bit of that going on. Uh, but they, I think, they appreciated my commitment and my resolve to follow my my own path. 
Right. No, it's incredible that you were able to, you know, do that. And, you know, the reason I ask that is because oftentimes when, you know, especially now, I mean, I, I've got it myself when I launched my business, I, I definitely felt some uh, backlash from my parents, especially when, I, I mean, I had to leave a job with Damon John of Shark Tank to be able to launch my own business. So I definitely yeah. got the backlash and, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's not necessarily um, promising. the job you had? <laughs> Right. I mean, that those are the type of questions I got. You know, why why are you leaving a salary on the table? Why are you leaving a penthouse office in New York City to right. to work from home? You know, and that's exactly why I ask because oftentimes I feel like a lot of individuals um, they they kind of back down from you know following their dreams or or following their desires because of lack of support. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. And um, you know, to continuously move forward, I have to ask on the topic of leadership. When do you feel like you stepped into your leadership? shoes. And probably the bigger question is why did you step into those leader shoes? You know, why did you feel like you had to be the one to do so? Like, what can you say to convince someone to do the same? (laughs) I can't say anything to convince you, but here's the deal. Uh, If you believe that people have something to offer, if you believe that getting your team to think as well as do is important, then what I have to say may be of interest. So here's the deal. I, I came up through the Navy system as a submarine officer. It's about telling people what to do and getting them to do it. You coerce is the word. You you get them to comply with your desires. And we say things like, oh, well, you know, a good leader, actually, they you get them to do it thinking it's their idea. But but but, but that's just window dressing. It's still you getting other people to do stuff that you decide we separate the decider from the doer. And what I think now is what we need in business and in life is to let the doers be the deciders. There's so many advantages to this. It engages the responsibility and the ownership and the, and the collective cognitive power of the doers when they're the ones choosing. And then they can't hide from, they can't hide behind it. Well, I was just told to do this, blah, blah, blah. That's why, you know. I was just told to make these diesel engines like this. I was just told to get this software out for the 737. They can't hide behind that anymore. And and it stems from a desire that, yeah, when you start, it's you. You got to make decisions. You got to get stuff done. But as, as you grow in in terms of the teams that you're leading, it becomes more and more and more what what my team can do and activating the thinking of everybody is better we say you want to create the environment so people can be at their best just the way they are there's only one person on the whole planet you can control if that and that is of course yourself so but that's hard so leaders say oh well you need to speak up well how about this how about you leader how about you ask a question in a way that makes it easy for the person to share. For example, I say we show up at a, 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 a we have to make a decision about launching the software. We say, hey, so this, uh, we're gonna launch on time, right? Uh, you just made it hard for me to say, no, I actually think it's a bad idea. We're, how about we're gonna launch the space shuttle on time, right? And so it gets worse and worse and worse from there. But the point is, make it easy. Ask the question in a way that makes it easy for them to disagree with you don't blame them for not speaking up or not, you know, being wilting lilies or whatever that happens to be. That's on you. That's always on you. Control your own behavior. Right, right. So you just mentioned leading a team. And in my general opinion, and you could tell me, you know, yours as well, and I'm very much so going to respect hearing this. In my opinion, you have to be able to lead yourself before you can lead anyone else, right? So, you know, taking steps back, what would you feel or what do, what do you feel is 
you know, the way to do that? How do you become a, a leader yourself and, you know, become decisive, um, become confident, et cetera, et cetera? Well, there are, there are a couple of things. One, you got to know your craft. I'm a big, I came from a very technical business, nuclear submarining. You couldn't talk your way. Like mother nature doesn't care what your excuse is. If you didn't take care of the pipe and the pipe got rusty and it made a hole and the steam came into the engine room, everyone's dead. It didn't really matter what you meant to do or wanted to do or tried to do. It only really mattered what happened. And so in this, in this self, um, in this very unforgiving world, you really come to rely on a couple things. Number one, when someone comes and tells you, I measured the pipe and it's 0.24 inches, you believe them that, that they believe it's 0.24 inches. Now you could have an argument that you measure it right and that kind of things, but you know, they, at least they believe they're not believing it's actually only 0.1 inches, but they're just fibbing it because they're as likely to die in the situation as you. I think self-regulation is really important. If you can't, Here's a very simple example. If you can't get up when your alarm goes off, then that means someone else is going to have to wake you up. In other words, you're making, you're forcing other people to tell you what to do if you're not self-regulating. And so this idea of I'm self-regulating, I don't need external carrots and sticks to get me to do what I need to do, which, which, which embodies a whole bunch of things. It means you're aligned you show up to work at a place that you feel about, you feel passionate about. If you go to work and you're like, oh my gosh, these people have forced me to do this. I really don't want to. It's probably not the right place. Now, I'm not saying not, there are, gonna, there are gonna be some boring, unpleasant, uncomfortable parts of work, but at the highest level, if what you're achieving is aligned to you as a human, then you, you'll, you'll be better off. David, you mentioned, and I'm going to ask this selfishly here, you mentioned the submarine a few times. I've never been on one in my life, but I have to ask you, what was that like? You know, that, that's a new experience for you. I know you mentioned you were an introvert, so it was kind of an environment that you, you know, were hoping for in a way. But, you know, going into that type of environment, what was that like? Yeah, so I ended up being a submarine commander, and it's, it, it, it's weird. It's just work. It just becomes the environment that you're in. Some people... They're mountain climbers. And I said, well, what's it like hanging from a cliff at 20,000 feet? Oh, that's just normal. It's just like, that's what we do. Well, what's it like being two, 300 feet underneath the ocean in a small tube with 140 of your closest friends? I don't know. It's just like, it's what we do. It's right. intimate. It's tight. We don't need a, a bunk is, is about $2 million worth of real estate because submarines are very expensive. So we don't even have enough bunks for people. So you're actually sharing a bunk with somebody else, not at the same time, but when you, when, when they get up to go on duty, you can get in the bunk, but it's still warm from their body heat. So we call that high racking. So there's a sort of sense of intimate rubbing up against each other frequently, um, closely coupled system, which you can use to your advantage because you can create tremendously powerful team connections. And if I said something at noon to one officer in the control room where there were a couple other officers and, and some of the crew standing around, by one o'clock, Ed spread throughout the whole ship. 
So you can use this closely coupled system to your, your advantage. On the other hand, if someone's a problem, then the team really needs to correct bad team behavior quickly or, or becomes, a, becomes a bigger problem. Yeah, that was going to lead me to my next question, you know, and, you know, you were just elaborating and illustrating the the type of an environment within a submarine is, you know, a tight space. You're, you're close to each other all the time. And I mean, personally, me being a New Yorker, if I'm on the subway and, you know, I bump someone on accident, you know, I'm turning around and they're giving me the finger, you know, that's yeah. just the nature of it. So my right. question that that's coming about here is how do you manage that type of environment as a leader to make sure that things of that nature aren't happening to the point where, you know, you're so close to someone all the time, you might get a little ticked off or you might get a little annoyed, you might snap, et cetera? Uh, my approach was to let people think what they wanted, but only focus on trying to influence behavior. So for example, uh, you bump into a guy on the subway. Uh, the guy says, fictional situation, you get off the subway, you report to your boss, oh, there's a jerk on the subway. Fine. You can think he's a jerk punch you in the face, that's where I'm going to draw the line. So people right. will come to me and say, oh, I think so-and-so is hard to work. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, I probably agree with that. So what are you going to do? Me? Nothing. I go back to work. The behavior has got to be team supporting. And I wouldn't um, – I w- here's the key. And for me, it was really hard. You can't pay attention to the blockers – the skeptics and the naysayers. Bad behavior you got to correct. But if it's just someone coming up and say, oh yeah, no, I don't think blah, 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 blah. And they're just, it's a consistent behavior because they're getting attention that way, then, then you're creating more of that behavior. So a behavior where we say, I want everyone to be happy before we make this decision is going to invite people who block to get a lot of attention, which is going to create more blockers. So you want to hear everyone's point of view and then make a decisive decision, knowing some people are not going to be on that side of the decision. The question is, can they support it through their behaviors? Hey, you're the engineer. We need to get this, uh, shut down this piece of equipment so that the weapons officer can fix it. Can you support that? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think this is the best time, but I can do it. Great. Do it. Then you decide and move on. Right away. I'm, trying to put this all together here, you know, when it comes down to identifying the top characteristics of a leader, and I'm going to ask you to put it into three just to potentially challenge it a little bit here. You know, you've talked about behavior, which we'll, we'll call psychological. Then obviously there comes into, you know, the personality type play as well. We talked about self-regulation. So if you were to drill down what an ideal leader would have in, in regards to characteristics, what do you feel like the top three would be? Well, I'm, I'm sure I'll give you three, but I'm sure I'll change them as soon as we hang up. But number one, you got to believe that humans have something to offer. We run an exercise in groups. Well, I'll say something like, I'll put, I'll put the group in a hypothetical situation. You're rushing down the highway. You see a person on the side of the road. They're in distress. Do you stop and help them? What's the probability you would stop? And most people say, yeah, yeah, I would. Even though I say, well, you have a deadline. You have to get to a, an important meeting or something. And then I said, what's the per- what percentage of people in this room would help? Much lower number. In other words, people consistently grade themselves as more likely to help than the persons, the people sitting around them in this conference or at this company even. 
So we, we, deep in our hearts, we believe we're better. We judge ourselves on our intentions. We judge others on their behavior. Well, I would help, but blah, 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 blah. If you can't get past that, then all this other stuff about empowerment, listening to your, it's all window dressing because in your heart of hearts, you believe you're smarter, better, faster, whatever than everybody else. That's number one. You got to believe in human beings. Number two, since all investments in human beings are uncertain long-term payoffs, you have to be thinking for the long run. Anyone who's locked into a short-term thing, it's always shorter to do it yourself, shorter to just tell them what to do, shorter to give them concise direction and make them the extensions of your will. Only, it's only a long-term potential investment in, well, what do you think? Building a decision-making machine as opposed to you making decisions. So you, number two, you got to have this belief that you're in it for the long run and you're not going to be captured and whipsawed by human biases that keep you um, in, in the short run. And number three is you got to get out from behind your own eyeballs, by which I mean, I spend so much of my life in the world, I basically view the world from behind my own eyeballs. I'm looking out from me. And what I like to do is picture me holding like a selfie stick off to the side and now looking back at me and my interactions and saying, wow, what would this, this, this passionate third person perspective about me say about me? And that decoupling of you from you is really powerful because then you see, oh, my gosh, I say this over and over. Oh, my, I was kind of a jerk. Oh, my, blah, blah, blah. So, and you, it's a slight inoculation against the passions of the moment. And I, oh, you dissed me and blah, 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 and F you, and here's the finger for bumping into you, right? What would the dispassionate third person think about the whole thing? So, those are, I don't know if those are the three, but those are certainly three important ones. Clearly important with those three. And I have to ask, in regards to the third one, having that third person perspective, do you have any advice to tap into that? Because, you know, oftentimes we can reflect after the situation happens. For instance, oh, wow, I was really a jerk to that person. Or, you know, yeah. the customer, you know, like we always realize it after the fact and we're not very proactive, we're more reactive. So how would you suggest we become proactive in that sense? So, so you can get help. If, if you work on a tight team, uh, you could give people yellow cards that's what we do. And we say, okay, if I start doing blank, not, not everything in the universe bad, but just, for example, if I interrupt you, yellow card me. Now you're starting to get some feedback. Now, if you're at a business meeting with a client, this might not be the best approach. I'll let you say, hey, look, I'm, we're, we're living our dog food. We're eating our own dog food. Uh, for me, I'm sensitive to my own language patterns. Uh, Clipping, so in other words, starting to talk before the other person is even finished is a clear sign to me that I'm proceeding down this more um, captured by passion path than really being deliberate and reflective about what I'm engaging in. So I just look for the one thing, and if I get a sense and I'm starting to jump in real fast. I mean, you're, 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 you're with your buddies, you're talking about the ball game, whatever, that's fine. But you're in a business negotiation is probably not the best approach. So I would pick a behavior like, 
like record yourself and then try and pick one sign that says, okay, this was the precursor to that behavior. It may be you roll your eyes. It may be you start talking faster. It may be like me that you start clipping the words before the other person's even done. Right. That's huge. Yeah. So self-awareness clearly plays a huge part in that as well. And uh, I appreciate the actionable advice on that front. I'm just trying to, right now I'm trying to piece together what type of environments I could start, you know, putting that into play. And so that's really great stuff. Now, you know, David, I, I do want to transition into your new book, Leadership is Language. I've not gotten through everything, but I absolutely love what I have gotten through. My first question to you for this is why write this book at this point in your career? Like, oh, you know, what's compelled you to say, all right, now it's time for another book. Yeah. So I wrote the story of the turnaround on the submarine and embedded in that story was a focus on language. If you're a submarine commander and you're about to launch a torpedo and you realize at the last minute, you know, I'm only, there's two ships out there and I'm not 100% sure we got the right one. And you say, don't shoot. But someone sneezes on the don't. All they hear is shoot. They push the button. You just killed the wrong people. So we would never say it like that. We would say, hold fire or something. We would give the, we would give the positive command. But, but the point is, you're always listening very carefully to exactly how you say things. So as I started uh, interacting with clients around the world, with the Turner ship around and intent-based leadership, I kept hearing words that they were saying, which I thought were unhelpful. And I would hear them in myself as well. I would say, I would hear, so we're good to go, right? And I was like, well, you know what? That just makes it hard for someone to say we're not good to go when that's exactly what I want to hear. And then I said, well, what is it felt like programming? What is programming me to say this way, talk this way? And so, number one, we came up with a, a hypothesis that basically we're running industrial age leadership playbooks. In the industrial age, you wanted to obey the clock because it was about manufacturing and reducing variability. And we separated the deciders from the doers. One people made decisions, the other people did it. And we have labels, white collar, blue collar, leader, follower, uh, salary worker, hourly, whatever. But it all stems from this division of society. Now what you need is the doers to also be the deciders. Let them choose as much as possible about what, how, why, and what they're making or doing. Now this brings a whole host of new plays. So instead of obeying the clock, we want to control the clock that allows us to say, time out, let's think about this. How do we think we're doing? Are we making the right product? Whereas before it was, no, make this product as fast as you can. So it's a, it's a new playbook. It's re-engineering the language. And the basic underlying reason why we need it is because work has changed, the workforce has changed, and we need the people who were hitherto doers to be doers and deciders. That is absolutely amazing. And I couldn't agree with you more regarding, you know, operating in an industrial age type of sense. But I just want to go backwards a little bit here. You know, you mentioned uh, the question that, and listen, at the end of the day, this question is something I've said. It's something that's been said to me. You mentioned we're good to go. So yeah. well, what's the proper replacement for that? Say, 
ask, what am I missing? What could be wrong? How could we be making a mistake? How likely is it that these assumptions upon which this whole plan is based is true? Make, make the question so that the easy path is for someone to say, what, what am I missing? What, what could be explained better? Well, you know that part about the, um, hey, we're gonna go uh, on a construction site. We're gonna go up to the third floor and start shifting over to carpentry from masonry. Uh, what's happened? Okay, great. The problem with these things is we're suppressing the team's ability to tell us what we don't want to hear, which may be the truth. What you want to hear is the truth. And uh, we, we've seen industrial accident after industrial accident. People knew what was going on. They either were afraid to say it or they said it. No one heard them. No one listened to what, what they were saying. And then leaders later would say, oh, well, no one told me. In other words, again, blaming others rather than saying and being reflective on, I, you know what, it turns out I wasn't actually asking questions in a way that made it easy for them to tell me how off base I was. Right, right. Yeah, it's huge. So if someone that reads this book, David, if they could only take one thing away from it, and listen, there's a whole lot of value within yeah. it. We, we barely scratched the surface here, and I don't want to give away the whole kit and caboodle, so that's exactly why I'm asking you this question. Yeah. If, pe if people could only take away one thing from this book, and I know it's going to be hard, what would you want that one thing to be and why? I'm going back to let the, let the doers be the deciders. We are so, the, the programming is so deep. We are so programmed into this other way of working that where we think it's, we think it's normal for somebody else to decide what I should do and for me to decide what someone else should do. Somehow that came to, that's normal. It not make any sense. So, so the problem is all your language, like we, I go to a technology company, they have an all hands meeting. Really people? We talk about clocking in and clocking out. Really? This is all vestiges of the industrial age. We run a meeting. Here's a perfect example. I, I'm doing a workshop with this uh, 10 executives from this top global company, two tables of five. I give them a question, like uh, come up with the population of Shanghai. You got 60 seconds. You can't look it up. Almost immediately someone says, well, I think it's 20 million. What do you think? And then they gravitate plus or minus that number or 2 million, whatever it is. The person who thinks, no, it's 200 million or 1 million or way off, they don't even say anything. And then the group ends up right where they started versus here's what it should do. Everybody, before we contaminate you with what the group thinks or what I think, write down what you think the number is independently. Now this all flipped the numbers. Then you go to the high and the low and you listen to those people. Oh, I see, you're the lowest number here. Explain how you got your reasoning. You're the highest number, explain you. You gotta make a decision and the group can coalesce, that's after. So the first is divergent work. Here's the key, thinking and creative work benefits from variability. Manufacturing and doing in industrial organizations have been trained to treat variability as the enemy. So everything, the, the way you run a meeting the language that sounds natural is about reducing variability. So we, we spend a lot of effort to get people with diverse backgrounds, and then we throw them into a meeting where we build consensus. Does that not sound like the opposite of diversity? Right, right. I just scratch my head. It's like, what? Just... <laughs> 
But that's because we've been programmed. It's good people with the wrong playbook. A hundred percent. You know, and David, to the point of you mentioning programming, you know, I'm, I'm 27 years old. There's going to be people that are older listening to this podcast and younger. Um, clearly, we all have work to do when it comes to leadership and when it comes to reprogramming ourselves. But, you know, if someone's looking for the why as to, you know, why they need to take these steps, what is that why? For me, here, here, here it is. When you're young, like your age, at least for me, you, I, I felt I needed to prove myself and I wanted to show that I could do it. I had a, what I call a be good, the be good mindset. And it was generally internally focused. It was about me. And I know some people who think about others when they're, when they're young, um, that really wasn't me. And in a sense, I was because it was about, I wanted to do this for the Constitution. But when I actually got to the nitty gritty of work, I felt like I was proving myself. And at this point, I'm like, I try to embrace what I call the, the get better self, not the be good self. So I just give up any pretense of being good with the idea that I can get better. The, the be good behaviors get in the way of the get better behaviors. And that's number one. Number two is you, you get all excited. Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting better car, fancier cars. Oh, I can pay for my kids to go to college. Oh, I can buy a bigger house closer, closer to the beach. And that's all becomes exciting for a while. And then it's just like, so why? And for me, the emails and the phone calls that I get, there, hey, we, um, we, we applied this. A lady lost 50 pounds. She was the ops manager for McDonald's. She said, I used to run around all day long, lots of stress, stress eater, not, a, not the right place for me to be maybe, but uh, pre-diabetic, bad situation. Now, people, the team leans into me. We lean upward, not downward. They, they're tell, then I go to McDonald's, number one. Tech, the different managers are texting me. Here's what I got. Here's my situation. Here's what I intend to do about it. Come on by and check on us. They're inviting feedback. Key. Create a culture of inviting feedback, not giving feedback. That just gives permission to be, for people to be jerks. And bottom line, she lost 50 pounds. When people feel they have more control over their lives, they're healthier and they're happier. I love that. That is the key, most definitely. So transitioning a little bit here, I know you're going to be doing a lot of these interviews and I'm sure you've done a whole bunch for you know, your, your past book. What's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I didn't mean to burst into laughter. Um, I don't know. I've, I've been keeping track of the questions people ask me and, I, and it's about a 200 page Documents. So I kind of get asked a lot of questions. I mean, questions about the submarine are always really, really fun. I, I guess I'll put it to you this way. When people ask me questions like, uh, I'll give you an example. I was doing an event with a big client and they were running a app where people could ask questions and then the rest of the group could up and down vote them. So it was a big global Fortune 100 company. And... The questions were all things like, well, how would you deal with a, an arthritic hierarchy? 
how would you deal with people who aren't leaders? How would you deal with blah, blah, blah? And these are the most upvoted questions in the group. And when I looked at that, there's a big problem because they're externalizing the problem. It's like, well, I'm not the problem. It's all these other things around me. That's the problem. There weren't too many questions, at least that rose to the top, that were like, well, how can I do better by my team? So the questions that get me excited, and I know people are on the, on the, on the same track that I was on, are more self-reflective. What is it that I can do so that my people can be better, not jump straight to, oh, well, these are problems, this guy's a problem, this person doesn't listen, this person is a micromanager, blah, blah, blah. That, those problems to me are uh, come, from, uh, come from the wrong place. Right. Yeah, that's huge. So, you know, you mentioned that you like the submarine questions. Uh, I have to ask, you know, what, what was, uh, you know, your most memorable memory on, on the submarine or, you know, uh, one of the, your favorite stories to tell or something of that nature? We, you see amazing stuff. I operated submarines up under the ice in the 80s and in the Pacific Ocean in the 90s and the 2000s. And we were on the surface one time, so we were coming into, there's a lot of shallow water in the Western Pacific, like coming into a place like Singapore. So you have to surface the ship two days ahead of time. And you're driving on the surface, middle of the night, driving on the surface, lots of stars. And we were driving through this bioluminescent algae, and the submarine makes a big wake. The submarine's very clumsy on the surface, like pushing an iceberg, basically. And we were plowing along this big wake, and as we were plow- and that was activating this bioluminescence. So behind you, as far as you could see to the horizon, in this pitch black night, was this bioluminescent V that just kind of extended uh, way off to the horizon, and that was that was like super magical. That's awesome. Yeah, I could only imagine how amazing that is. I mean, I, I love being out on the water and hearing stuff like that is, is you know, incredible. And uh, again, I just want to thank you for your service, which is phenomenal. And uh, transitioning here, you know, from all of your experiences, what do you feel like is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And why was it given to you? Uh well, I got some really good advice. I was about to take over the uh, my submarine, or maybe I had already. I was, it, was, it was right about the time, early in my days as commanding officer, and I was talking to an officer who was two, three or four years senior to me. Uh, Tom Kyle was his name, who I highly respected, tremendous tactician. And he said to me, you know, I kind of wish – that I'd had like uh, a nickel. I had a, I had a jar and a nickel. I had to drop a nickel into the jar for every decision I had to make. Because that would have made it visible that I was the source of goodness here, not the team. And if I can get the team to make decisions and I don't need to drop nickels into my jar, then if, if I get incapacitated, if I'm, overtired, if I'm overstressed, it doesn't take the whole team down because the team will be resilient, independent of whatever's going on with me. And I need, I want a resilient team that's going to outlast me. And I just kept, I never did the actual jar, but I just kind of kept that image. And I was like, every decision I make costs me money. It costs 
the organization the opportunity for the team to develop their own decision-making muscle muscles. And that was really, that really helped me a lot. That's huge. I mean, at the end of the day, it's true. You know, if you want to wake up at 7am to go to the gym and you, you don't, right. That, that definitely costs you, especially over time. Then I think that's definitely something that a lot of people need to hear. And I, I think the whole, um, you know, putting a, a dollar amount or even though if, if it's only five cents, I feel like that gamifies that a little bit. And it's definitely actionable advice that a lot of us, including myself can definitely take on. So I appreciate that share. And on the flip side of that advice, I just actually, you know, what, what was the best piece of advice you ever Received, I have to ask you, what was a piece of advice that was given to you that you didn't necessarily want to hear, but it proved to be true over time? Mm. Well, <laughs> so in the, in the year leading up to being a submarine commander, you go through a long school, you learn all the stuff about the ship you're going to take over normally, although for me it changed, and you do some tactics. Anyway, we were in this, we were at sea. We were two submarines. We were fighting. We called mano a mano. So it was the old, you know, uh, dueling your, you and your machine against them and theirs. And uh, sweat dripping down your forehead, chess game, don't make a sound. All that stuff was playing out. And it was sort of tied. The, and I came up with a strategy for breaking the tie, which for us killing them, which involved – is a little complicated, but basically involved making the sound so it sounded like we were shooting a torpedo, but not actually shooting a torpedo, which would spark them to try and evade, which would then make them vulnerable so that when we shot our torpedo, uh, we could kill. So, so I explained this to the team, and it plays out exactly like I had predicted. And I'm sitting there, and it's now time for us to shoot and get this thing over with. And the, the guys on the team weren't, they, they hadn't caught up to where I was. And so I actually reached over and I pushed this guy aside and I'm tweaking the buttons on his computer. <laughs> he kept like, push over, let me enter, 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 back, back. So, uh, and we shot, we, we, we sank them, we won the war. And I'm like high-fiving and everyone's excited. And then the teacher, his name is Mark Kenny, who was my, uh, became my, my, my Commodore when I went to my first submarine. Calls me aside, guys. Gives me a little finger wag. Come in, come here, young man. And he chews me out one side and down the other. I'm like, what? Are you, what is going on here? We just like this was genius tactical move. And he's like, look, it didn't matter what you did. That you didn't explain to the team. Your team was not with you. You you went different from your team. This one officer probably feels humiliated. Now you reached over and moved. How do you think it's going to work for him next time you need something out of him? Blah, 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 blah. I, and I, I was like, I was had this like cognitive dissonance. I was like, am I really hearing this? And then, but I was smart. I didn't lip, I didn't get a bunch of lip. I just said, hmm, let me go think about it. And when I thought about it, more I thought about it, more or less, he, he was right. He was right. I had become part of the problem. And I was just trapped in this old way of, no, no, I'm the smartest guy. I can figure it all out. I don't really need anyone. But you got 140 people in the submarine. You can't do everything. And if you don't tap the brain power, you're screwed. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, I look at you now, you know, preaching leadership in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, 
that, that's just, you know, amazing to hear the, the transformation that's come about. And, uh, you know, David, I want to respect your time here. I got one last question for you. If you could only give one piece of, let's just call it universal advice for the rest of your life, what would that be? Listen. As simple as that. I try to be concise. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I mean, at the end of the, uh, you hear me saying it, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, listen, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's huge. It's huge. Uh, and I, I think that becomes a, a crucial part of leadership is being able to listen more. And I think all of, you know, the valuable advice and the tidbits and the golden nuggets that you've been able to provide throughout this entire episode, which I'm truly grateful for, you know, it goes to show that, um, being someone that's able to listen is huge. So it all ties together. And that's, you know, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Thanks. I, I, I grade myself probably about a B minus listener. I used to be maybe a C listener. I try hard to get better. I tend to get excited and think I know what's going on in the other person and what they should do about it. And I want to tell them, and uh, and then it turns out it's something totally different if I if I've done a good job listening and then and I pick up the the ones and the zeros and the place and the time but I don't pick up on the how it felt for them to be in a situation and I I just I rededicate myself almost every day today when I go to work I'm going to do a better job listening to what my people are telling me. Right, right. Well, listen, either you're a hard grader or you're hard on yourself because I, I, I have to say, you know, from what you've been able to achieve thus far, you are most definitely better than a B minus listener. But, um, you know, David, I definitely want to say thank you, extend the gratitude once more. And I have to ask, where can people keep up with you on social media? Uh, I'm sure the books, both uh, Leadership is Language and Turn the Ship Around are available throughout all major, um, you know, places such as Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera, um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. web website, any, anything of that nature, where could people keep up with yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Connect with me. I'm on uh, my, all my uh, social media handles are the same. It's L David Marquet. L stands for Lewis. L David Marquet, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, connect, say hi. The name of our program is called Intent Based Leadership. We got a YouTube channel called Leadership Nudges, which uh, we do 60 second little tiny tidbits. You don't need more training. You just need reminders. David, I'm going to make sure all of the links are in the show notes of this episode for everyone listening to uh, keep it nice and easy for them. So again, I just want to say thank you for hopping on here and truly do appreciate it. All right. Hey, thanks so much uh, for having me on your show. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, from our friend, Captain David Marquet himself. Right away, I'm going to jump into the three points that resonated with me on a very high level. And I say this all the time, but it's so true. It's really hard to only pick three of these. I have five written down, so I'm literally going to close my eyes and just randomly circle some shit right now. The first one that I really want to talk about is understanding the be good behaviors, the quote unquote be good behaviors will get in the way of you getting better. Every single time, no matter what field you're in, I don't care if you're a nurse, I don't care if you're an interior designer, I don't care if you're an entrepreneur, whoever you are, if you are continuously trying to quote unquote be good, you will always get in the way of yourself getting better. And I really want you to think about that. In fact, you know what? We're going to do a roundtable discussion on that. I am noting that right now. That is going to be going down rather soon, by the way. So again, the be good behaviors are always going to get in the way of the get better behaviors. 
Secondly, a huge point, you need to start viewing things from a third person perspective, almost an outer body experience, because that's exactly how you're gonna be able to be proactive as opposed to reactive. Maybe you said something stupid to someone, maybe you did something stupid to someone, right? How would you be able to predict or how would you be able to be proactive? Like that's the word I use, right? As opposed to reactive and in regards to you already doing something and then need to apologize, so on and so forth. So again, viewing things from a third person perspective, an outer body experience, viewing yourself as if you were holding yourself on a selfie stick, as David mentioned in this episode. And number three, tapping into, I'll leave it at that. David starts talking about tapping into the brain power around you, the brain power of your team. But how about even further than that? How about tapping into your network? How about tapping into your resources? How about tapping into all things of that nature to be able to help you continuously level up in whatever endeavor you are pursuing in life at this given moment. You're doing so right now by tapping into this podcast, no matter where you're listening from, right? That's one thing, but what else can you be tapping into? What else can you be doing while listening to this podcast? Who can you be emailing? Who could you be texting? Who could you be, you know, picking their brain? Are you sitting waiting for someone to go pick their brain at a coffee shop? Whatever the case is, make sure you are tapping in. That right there is huge. So again, those three points, number one, viewing life from a selfie stick, a third person, an outsider's perspective, going about life in that way so you can be proactive versus reactive, knowing that being good will always get in the way of get getting better. And number three, tapping into, tap into the brain power, tap into the resources, tap into the network, make sure you are tapping in. Now, to connect with David, you could do so in the show notes of this episode. You'll be able to find his books, his social links, all of that good stuff so that you could pick his brain on how you can level up your leadership, whether that's in your organization, in your own life, in your household. Because listen, if you're a parent, if you're an older sibling, you need to be a leader. You really, really do. And I don't want this to go over anyone's head. This is not just about business. This is way bigger than that. And probably I should have said that in the beginning of the episode, but now, now that you've made it this far, I wanna make sure that you're sharing this with individuals that can find this to be of value, right? Now that you know that this is on a larger perspective, who else can you share this with? That means the absolute world to us, by the way. Don't forget to leave a rating and review if you haven't done so already. We are continuously pursuing more and more of those because we want to continue to tailor the show to exactly what it is that you need. We want to be able to be that source for you to continuously level up. So what is it you need? Let us know by giving us any sort of review. I'm not even here asking you for five stars. I would just really, really, really appreciate that. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.